0: Hello and welcome to the Chris Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Blake Cooper. We discussed patients who are living with diabetic retinopathy, specifically uh, diabetic macular edema, clinically significant macular edema. We talked about protocol V, protocol W, which I think is really helpful for us as clinicians to know when we want to make the right referral. Uh, And I think part of that is just having a great retinal surgeon that you have really good communication with. So, Please enjoy our conversation. It was a lot of fun for me to discuss this with with Dr. Cooper. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. Listen, if you're trying to enhance a protocol in your practice and you're trying to answer whether or not you can integrate this protocol in a way that allows you to take care of patients who have both medical and managed vision care needs, We've got the thing for you. It's called Total Patient Care, icodeeducation.com. We also have a mastermind group that is quickly forming and quickly filling up for this summer that's going to start and launch on June 1st. So. Don't wait, get access. We'll have a coupon code now in the show notes that will allow you to access that at a discount and jump on board with the Summer Mastermind Total Patient Care Group. It will help you answer the questions that you're struggling with within your practice to integrate new protocols and new disease state management. Check it out, icodeeducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E, education.com. One of the challenging things with patients is that when they invest in a really high-quality pair of glasses and customized lenses, occasionally it can be difficult to keep those lenses clean, scratch-free, and smudge-free. Now, we have the ability with Crizal Sapphire HR lenses to offer our patients a best-in-class anti-reflective coating that is also resistant to scratches, smudges, and deposits. This means that patients spend more time enjoying clear and comfortable vision and less time caring for their lenses. So remember that you can provide patients with the best in quality, best in class, transparency, clarity, durability, and UV protection in a single Crizal coating. If you want to learn more about Crizal Sapphire HR, contact your Essilor account executive or visit EssilorPro.com backslash Crizal. So, so thanks for jumping on. You know, you and I had had a, a great conversation, although brief, uh, a great conversation in Dallas about a month ago now, and one of the things, one of the reasons I want to have you on as a retinal surgeon is because my philosophy, and maybe maybe you picked up on this, maybe you didn't, but my philosophy in terms of patient care is to use the right people at the right time in all of those patient interactions. And one of the things that I really have come across in just in reading the literature, but haven't really had an in-depth conversation with anybody on the podcast is this, and I'm probably going to even butcher it because I don't know if it's protocol V or protocol Roman numeral five, but I'd like to talk about that a little bit because it's, it's really interesting, um, to me because we always think that DME, diabetic macular edema uh, needs treatment, and, and this tells us maybe we just monitor them. So, can you talk about a little bit about Protocol Five and, and how you use it
1: in your practice, or is it Protocol yeah. V? Well, uh, you know, again, I think it's the, the concept is there. It's Protocol V, and and, and it gets back to the fact that they they're starting to run out of letters in the alphabet, and and they're now starting to duplicate some of those letters. So, you know, you'll see Protocol AA, or you'll see you know several protocols within the or net. And so, what you're really talking about are randomized clinical trials, looking at um, sort of the way we treat somebody who lives with diabetes, right? And, you know, for protocol V, you can think of V like very good vision, right? So somebody comes in, they have 20-20 vision, they have diabetic retinopathy of some level, right? They might have, you know, evidence of macular edema. And the question is, what do you do with that patient, right? And the, the, the question is, can you watch them and observe them? It depends where that edema might be, you know, We and as you know, you know, we sort of change sort of the way we tend to think of it as either being centrally involved or not centrally involved. And what that protocol showed us was that not everybody needs to be treated. So after a few years of observation, visual acuity was the same. As compared to those who were treated, right? And Now, anatomically, the retina might have looked better, right? You might have had less severe disease, and those who are being treated with an anti-VEGF agent, um, their macular edema might have improved. But as far as you know, the the DRCR Net studies, what they're really trying to answer are very specific questions. Is to, like you said, what do we do with that patient, right? And and what's important to understand whenever you look at a clinical trial is who was being treated right and under what circumstances and then the duration of the trial so those who live with diabetes do so with for decades right and and you know a short period of time you know although two years seems long may not be long enough for us to really know the, the the final result or what's best and so then you have to factor in treatment burden you have to factor in cost right and and you know the art of medicine is, is trying to figure out when we really intervene with and start treatment and and a lot of it is you know very very specific for that moment with the patient in your chair right so i think the the question is when does that patient show up in our chair right and and you know, that's that's probably a good place to sort of discuss is when when are you going to make a referral? When do we sort of say, well, no, we don't need to see that patient? And, and under what circumstances?
0: Well, I think that's what's really helpful with, you know, so, so just so the audience knows, um, Dr. Cooper and I are not in the same town. We don't practice in the same town. So so we don't share patients um although just my interactions with him so far would would suggest that that I would I would be completely open to sharing patients if we were a lot closer sure. the um the 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 thing that I think about is you know we kind of remember back when we're we're taking care of patients who have diabetes and those patients have diabetic retinopathy we sort of uh, rely on you know, what we would call clinically significant macular edema. And actually what's interesting about that definition to me is it was defined really previous to when we had OCT technology. And so it was almost ophthalmoscopic thickening, which I think is kind of lost because then we can look and detect super minimal thickening uh, on OCT where we would never know it, notice it ophthalmoscopically. So as the optometrist, as the referring optometrist, so I have a patient... Let's say that, I mean, again, we're, we're having a hypothetical conversation, but let's say their A1C is 7.5 and, they're, um, and they are doing the things they can try. They're doing, their, let's say their internal medicine physician is, is trying to stay on top of them. They're working on their diet and exercise, maybe some new medications as well involved in that. Uh, but we see some small amount of, of retinal thickening on OCT, but not ophthalmoscopically, and the patient is twenty twenty. When do you want
1: to see that patient? Yeah, so I think a lot of it's going to depend on your experience with that patient, right? So is this somebody that that is fresh in the door the first time you've seen them and and you know you you see that they're doing everything that they need to be doing and they have good vision and you know they might have some you know central involved macular edema, I still feel like that patient probably. Could be observed um, now, not at an annual visit at that point, but you know you might want to bring that patient back either in you know four to six months and and sort of repeat an OCT and and reevaluate and sort of see how they're doing. Now, if it's somebody that you have you know seen and and you know you can see that the retinopathy is progressing, right, and and you've had the conversation that if they are worsening, that um, you're going to sort of send them on, right? I mean, then then you might want to get them in for an initial evaluation. And, and then maybe that's a patient that, that we sort of share and, and you see them once a year and I see them once a year. But if there's a change, then we get them back either from you know, either direction. But, You know, if if we get back to that hypothetical patient, right, I guess you you mentioned newer medications. So what I would want to know is, okay, did they just start uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists? So, So we have these different classes of new medications, right? And, and there's, there's the, the drug that we all know for weight loss that people are taking, you know, semaglutide or ozempic um, and, you know, that medication, uh, when it was being studied, so all, all, so, so if we back up a little bit, all medications for those who live with diabetes have to go through cardiovascular outcome trials. And, and it's, it's not only to show that they're beneficial, you know, for, you know, their glycemic management, but it, but it's to make sure that they're also safe. Uh, because years ago with with the ACCORD study where they tried to really have very, very tight control for those who live with type 2 diabetes, they saw an increased rate of mortality. And, and, and so after that, you know, the FDA really mandated these cardiovascular outcome trials. And that put a big treatment burden uh, for the, getting well, can drugs you pause approved. there? Yeah. Blake, can you pause there for just a second? Uh, the
0: out. So I, I am familiar with that. But is your take from that that the reason that they they had a higher risk for mortality was it because the medication they were using did cause cardiovascular poor cardiovascular outcomes or because there was so little wiggle room that they were almost over treating? I mean, what was your take from that?
1: Yeah. So so I think the the take on that was um, medications are safe when used appropriately. However, people were were targeting an A one C. Within a normal range, right, and so what that meant was a lot of people who lived with diabetes for a long time, who had cardiovascular disease, were were becoming hypoglycemic, right? Blood sugars okay. were dropping okay. below seventy, um, and sometimes you know below fifty five, and then that cardiovascular stress is is to, to drive down the average A one C or average blood sugar over a three month period of time, was what was causing you know mortality, right? And and so what we've realized is. That we would much rather have somebody in a range, let's say 70 to 180, you know, 70 percent of the time, rather than a hemoglobin A1C of seven, right? So, and and then within that, we want to make sure that the glycemic variability really is is not fluctuating, so we don't have this you know huge excursions. But but the point is, lows were what were, were driving that mortality rate and and but but there was questions there were there were certain classes of medications um, the glitazones essentially like pyoglitazone uh, that that did show an increased rate of mortality and and you know and and so the question at the time this is you know going back probably 2006 you know we didn't really know what was causing so so the fda mandated these cardiovascular outcome trials well so for uh, the GLP-1 receptor agonist, um, semeglutide or, or Ozempic, um, that trial was a sustained six trial and and in that trial, there were a wider range of, of people who had diabetes. so you had a much wider range of hemoglobin A1Cs so A1Cs in the tens, right and and the effect effectiveness of that medication is that it probably would see about a 2% reduction in overall A1C when you started that medication at therapeutic levels. And that process, we know from other medications, let's say if somebody starts insulin therapy, the retinopathy is going to progress, right? And, and so what they saw was they saw a higher rate of retinopathy. Now, those patients weren't seen by our care, eye care professionals. It was just they had an eye event, whatever that might have been, could have been a PVD, could have been something, but but regardless, they had more essentially defined retinopathy, whatever that, take that what it is, right? They weren't seeing an optometrist, they weren't seeing an ophthalmologist or retina specialist, but, but they had higher rates. And and, and we've sort of seen that over time that, you know, if you get back to the days of the DCCT and EDIC trials where we saw sort of this early worsening of retinopathy, right, with better glycemic Mm -hmm. control, but long-term patients do better, right? So um, my point is, is that if that patient, the, the hypothetical patient we're talking about, had just started semaglutide, right? And then you were seeing some retinopathy, that could be a patient that you could continue to monitor and watch and tell them, yes, we know your retinopathy is going to probably get a little bit worse, but your glycemic control is going to improve. And we're going to watch this and we're going to have you back and follow you closely. Right. And, and if they have good vision, that that's a very reasonable approach for that, that hypothetical patient. So, so you really have to sort of get into what their glycemic management is. Right. And, and, and part of, you know, how I approach my patients who live with diabetes is you know I'm looking at you know do they have a continuing glucose monitor what is their time and range what is their we call it the coefficient of variance of glucose, but that fluctuation of their you know glycemic you know management you know we hate to say control but um, the concept is is there that that you want to make sure that they're doing everything they can to maximize the risk factors that they have right and and that goes a long way to how they're going to do four or five years from now. Right. I mean, we, they certainly care about what, what, what's happening that moment, but you know, it's really hard to sort of pinpoint the direction somebody's going. Right. And, yeah. and you know, that, that's where I sort of rely on you is to say, okay, I I've been watching this patient for years. They are declining and that's the time for referral. Right. Um,
0: yeah. The, the so you brought up a couple points there that i think are are helpful to dig into the first one is you know to me it seems completely obvious that you'd want to have a continuous glucose monitor i mean regardless of how long you've had diabetes or or how long you've had to live with it but there seems to be some pushback in payers uh and is that because the evidence just isn't quite there until you hit a certain level of of um challenges with with blood sugar control. I mean, why why are we seeing that not every patient with diabetes just has an automatic link to their phone that they can just scan and mm-hmm. and get
1: information? Yeah. So I think it's a personal decision, right? I mean, we have to sort of take it back to the patient level, right? And, and it makes sense to us as, as, you know, sort of eye care professionals that, yes, everybody should have one, right? It, it, it It's sort of an easy concept. But when you ask somebody that lives with diabetes, to have to think about it more than just a few mm. times a day, right? I mean, they're getting information every five minutes, which is tremendous to know which direction they're going to go. But to have to have that burden um, and living with it 24 seven and thinking about it, it's, it's impactful. Um, You know, sort of from a personal standpoint, uh, my oldest daughter has type one diabetes, right? And yeah, I was hoping you'd bring so that she up. Was, yeah. So she was, she was diagnosed at 12 and she's 23 now and and it's been sort of a very interesting sort of perspective i mean so i've been practicing for 20 years the first 10 years i I care for people with diabetes and the last 10 years i've done as well but my 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 perspective i think has changed a little bit right um you know we have these targets and these goals and we tell people it's important but but it's the mental challenge and of of living with a disease all the time that that can be challenging, right? And and so she's, you know, been very fortunate, right? She's a smart kid, she's a first year med student, and she's been able to have every resource possible, right? So um, when she was diagnosed um, at the time, insurance wouldn't cover a CGM or an insulin pump for the first three or four months of her, her diagnosis, and that you had to What was to the rationale? For, uh, so okay. I think it was th- so that they would get used to being able to manage diabetes hmm. with injections, right? And and understand what a basal insulin was, what what a short, long term acting insulins were, how they worked, and, and and understand, you know, that portion of it. So that if their pump failed, or if something else failed, it would it would uh, be important. Uh, from a CGM standpoint, they wanted to prove that they were having episodes of. of you know, hypoglycemia that warranted the, that risk, right, of, of needing extra help or extra understanding. Um, and then oftentimes for those who live with type 1 diabetes, there's probably a, a few months, maybe a year or two, where they're in this sort of honeymoon period where they still have some functioning beta cells, and, and, and those beta cells are still producing some insulin, so they may not have the large fluctuations. But um, you know, fortunately, you know we could afford it, and and so we just automatically put her on a, a insulin pump and and a CGM monitor, and um, and then she got actively involved with the JDRF. So she testified in Congress in 2015, um, advocating for Medicare coverage of the CGM devices. Right. So this was going back only you know, 2015. Yeah, um, and then a few years okay. later, Medicare then picked up on CGM. So CGMs have evolved quite a bit as far as their accuracy, their comfort. You know, again, um, there were there were some sensors that were very uncomfortable to wear. Um, now they've gotten smaller. Um, and, and I think, you know, we're catching up to that, right? Patients who used to use them are coming back to them. Um, you have you know elite athletes that are trying them to sort of try to see what happens with their you know nourishment with their blood sugars, which I sort of find humorous. But um, so I think the 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 technology is there. The cost is probably coming down. Um, it's just you know insurances are are variable, right? And and not everybody is might might have insurance, but they don't have the same level of coverage, right? Yeah. which can be frustrating.
0: Yeah, I think there that's kind of another rabbit hole we could dig into a little bit. It's just is just the you know, the ability to and I think that there have been some studies on it, but it hasn't been it's been only short term gains, but but the idea that even patients who don't have to live with diabetes or you know, like you and I, mm-hmm. could gain some insight in terms of just understanding what our blood sugar does throughout the day, so that we mm-hmm. are trying to avoid some of those spikes. Which is a peripheral to our conversation, but it's kind of interesting. I think I think I, I um, read something that they had like two years of data, and it basically showed that initially people really paid a lot of attention to it, and they would and they would prevent a lot of spikes. But then over time, it was. Is relatively ineffective at uh, patients who don't have diabetes. Maybe maybe I'm misremembering, but uh, that was that's what I recall from it. So I wonder if that same issue occurs. Like, did it occur with your daughter when she had her her first CGM, where it was helpful a lot at first, and or and then just it didn't make much difference, or it's it's because you have to manage that condition. You have to you you can't just be like, yeah, I'm going to have a tub of ice cream tonight you have to know that that's going to be a problem.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a cause and effect that you can see, right? So you'll realize that you know, your glycemic challenge, whatever it be, a tub of ice cream or a plate of pasta or pizza or whatever, is going to have an issue and an effect, right? And, and then you manage it by you walk after you eat or you go for a run or you bolus before to cover the carbs you're taking. Um, and, and so you, you sort of learn a lot of that. But she's been fortunate um, that she's been sort of in this sort of closed loop system. It's 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 really sort of a do it yourself version. So she has a insulin pump that is a patch pump. So it's there's no tubing with it. It's it's um, you know I don't know if we want to say drug companies or not, but uh, but that that pump um, connects to her. CGM device. And then there's an algorithm that runs on her phone that will bolus her if she's going high and suspend insulin when she's going low. And, and that process is, is sort of, she's been in a do it yourself version of that uh, for probably about five years now, um, which really takes a lot of the mental burden away from it. You still have to, you know, sort of watch what you're doing, but, but, you know, it's, it's sort of nice to wake up with a full night's rest, right? You weren't up at night chasing a low and you weren't mm. bolusing for a high. You feel better because you've got, you know, a decent night's sleep and, and you start close to in range, right? So she's starting at a hundred and, and from there, you know, she's had eight good hours and then she manages it as well as she can. Right.
0: Yeah. You know, when you, so there's a, a couple of things that you also brought up that I think would be helpful to get your perspective on. The first was, is, um, you know, I always tell my patients who are living with diabetes that I can't know how challenging it is because I don't have the condition. But I but I see all these patients that that do struggle. What do you, what do you feel like is is a good builder uh to show that you have empathy for for your patients who are struggling with these things like say it's not that patient the hypothetical patient that i presented first it's already doing re- everything they should do but it's a, a patient that's sort of grumpy because they got to see you they're grumpy because their vision is down they're grumpy because now this is another copay they don't they don't really want to do a whole lot anyway i mean do these patients come in, into your practice often and if so how are you building rapport with them so that they want to execute they're uh, a strategy that helps them long term, what are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a lot to the language we use right and and so you know i people feel like they're being graded constantly mm. right and and they feel like they're constantly failing when it when it comes to you know managing diabetes right because you know you know we're we're sitting here with these you know target ranges that will help reduce risk for long term complications. Uh, but but patients, you know, as you know, who live with diabetic retinopathy, can be pretty asymptomatic and have severe disease, right? And, and so they see well, so they have a hard time understanding um, that that why are they here? Why you know do they have to go see the podiatrist? Why do they have to have an endocrinologist or a nephrologist or whatever ist? Right? And and it's it's a lot of treatment burden. You know, by the time someone starts treatment for macular edema, they'll probably have twenty five physician visits when you break it down over the course of a year right so that's a month Jeez. of seeing a patient of being uh, seeing a patient seeing a, a physician of some sort which is overwhelming right so i think starting with the understanding that that you're you're there to help them manage a disease that's not manageable right and and to show them why it's important right so we have these tools in our offices Fundus, cameras OCT images we have we have lots of things where we can sort of say this is why you're here right this is we're watching this or this is getting worse and this is something that we have hope for we have treatment for and and you know understanding that this could lead to visual loss right is is fine but but starting with you're going to go blind if you don't do this is is different than I understand that you know this is catching up with us and and now we have to you know try to sort of figure out a way to sort of slow it down or reverse the course right or, or try to help improve things um i think one of the hardest things about you know some of those other you know alphabet protocols right whatever you want to whichever ones you want to sort of touch on um you know protocol w would be one of them but uh is what is it significant if if we can reverse the stages of retinopathy, right? And and that's the part that that honestly we just don't really have an answer for, right? We have you know anti-VEGF agents that will will reduce the level of how we grade retinopathy, and and we're still working around whether or not that is is important, and and it, it certainly is important, but but trying to sort of show that there's ways to sort of reverse something that's getting worse is is very very powerful right and, and i think it's very motivating you know i mean the, the hardest challenge you probably have it i would imagine is you see somebody who you feel like needs to be referred and you tell them and then they don't seek out that next step right and yeah. and getting them you know to make that commitment is, is important and and part of it is you know you know, you have this ability to say I know this person and and they can help you as opposed to oh you're getting worse and you yeah, know sorry. Well, I never think
0: that I mean the the heart the patients that in our practice so there's I have there's 3 of us docs and all optometrists in my practice and it seems to me that over my 15 years of practice the ones that are challenging when they need to be referred are not the ones that are continually showing up in our office, you know, the ones that are following where we might be seeing them every six months, 12 months, four months, depending on what, you know, what, uh, level of retinopathy they have. Those are the, those are the hard ones. It's the ones that come in every three or four years and now they've fallen off a cliff and they're Mm -hmm. finally coming in because their vision isn't, uh, isn't very good. Or maybe they're they're sort of peripherally aware of it, but they haven't been paying attention. And so they're kind of like, yeah, my vision's not that great. And then you're like, okay, well, we can do something about this. I'll show them all their images. I'll say, look, I mean, and I'm almost positive. I'm saying, look, in the past, when I was trained, I mean, think about that. I mean, you were the same way. Mm-hmm. When I was trained, anti-VEGF medications were like just coming out. I mean, at best, our our treatment protocols were to burn the retina and prevent it from developing new blood vessels just by killing it right and and so the awesome part is we can we can prevent that right we don't have to do that anymore but um but anyway so it's just but but then they will resist you know so it's the patients that come in you know every few years and then when you those are the ones that i have the hardest time referring it is not the patients that you know, we've been watching and watching closely and, and now all of a sudden they have they have a little vision loss, they have enough DME to send for treatment, and um and they're like, Yeah, done, they get it. Uh so that's I don't know if that, that's been your experience as well, but that's from primary care. That's that's my experience.
1: Yeah. And do you feel like the, the, the reason for that challenge is patients understand that anti-vegf therapy is an injection and they fear the idea. Of, of having intravitreal injection or do you feel like they just it's overwhelming and it's too much for them and and if you can't help them with with a refractive air issue they're gonna not move forward
0: as you know patients with vitreous floaters are often frustrated by their symptoms The challenge as clinicians is to offer solutions for our patients for vitreous floaters that are effective. But more often than not, the options of YAG vitreolysis and vitrectomy are not practical because the benefits don't outweigh the risks. That's where vitreous health from MacuHealth comes into play. Previously on the podcast, I've discussed the FLIES study with Dr. John Nolan. And the bottom line is that I can be confident prescribing this for my patients with floaters because I can tell them A large randomized placebo-controlled trial found that after six months of supplementation with vitreous health, floaters were reduced in size by approximately 30%, and 70% of patients had an improvement in their symptoms. Vitreous health has been great for my patients, and we really feel like we have a viable option to treat patients with vitreous floaters now that we didn't have before. If you're not utilizing vitreous health for your patients, reach out to your MACU Health representative now. young and emerging presbyopes can be tricky. These patients want and need additional help at NEAR, but they can be resistant to solutions that create even mild distance blur. The MyDay multifocal lens has been great for our presbyopic patients. It allows those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily. We've had this lens now for long enough that we've been able to see how simple transitions can be from an adaptation standpoint from lower ad designs to higher ad designs. The MyDay Multifocal Material is Cooper Vision's softest one-day hydrogel lens and features aquaform technology combining the unique balance of high oxygen permeability with natural wettability in one material. The result is a highly breathable lens that keeps our patient's eyes looking clear, white, and healthy. So if you haven't started utilizing my day multifocal in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your Cooper vision representative to get started. Yeah, I think, I think it's probably less of the fear of an intravitreal injection for most patients. I think it's more about, um, you know, this is, yeah, I think it's more about, I just want a simple fix and they, they don't see it as a simple fix. Um, but I, I could be wrong. I mean, I think most of the, uh, most of the surgeons that you know, the patients are a little apprehensive about it. But you know, the surgeons that I use for those are, I mean, they're they've got great bedside manners. They do an amazing job trying to make the patient as comfortable as possible, both like emotionally and physically. Um, but I don't know. What What do you think? Do you think that um, it's more about the fear of the intravitreal injection?
1: I hope not. I mean, I, I hope that you know by the time that they've been through an injection that you know usually the response is that was it. I worried about it for nothing, or you know um, it wasn't as bad as I thought. Um, I had one lady tell me she'd rather have childbirth than go through that again. I think that was just the (laughs) mental aspect around it, like the fear of having an injection, right? I mean, you know, I think that you're right that, you know, we've shifted away from we're going to use either focal or panretinal photocoagulation to prevent visual loss to we now have the ability to gain two lines of vision. Right. So when we look at it, you know, with, with, you know, laser treatment, the outcomes were, okay, we're going to prevent moderate or severe visual loss, Mm -hmm. right. As opposed to we can actually now gain vision and hopefully maintain reading and driving level of vision. Right. Cause I I tell my patients, you know, you're not going to be 20 years old again and see like you did when you were 2020. Right. But if we can keep you 20 functional reading, driving, maintaining employment right that's a huge benefit right and and i think that you know treatment burden aside patients who can move forward in their lives and be productive are going to be more engaged with with the idea um i think that you know as, as you have to tell somebody that they no longer could drive right because of their level of vision Um, That's a motivating factor. I mean, the hard part about, again, living with diabetes is you have a lot to deal with, right? And and by the time they have severe retinopathy, usually their glycemic management is the best it's ever been. That's the most frustrating portion of this disease Mm -hmm. is that, you know, we're not replacing vessels that are damaged, right? We're just trying to sort of prevent further loss of the, you know... Structures that that they were born with, and and you know, until we get to that point where we can regenerate, you know, nervous tissue, and you know, replace vessels or prevent, you know, them from really getting to that level, you know, we're we're going to still be dealing with patients that lose vision, and that's very, very, very frustrating.
0: You mentioned um, protocol W. Mm-hmm. Um, t- let's talk about that for a second. Tell tell uh, tell me about what. What that yeah, is. So, so so it's clinically- sort of
1: in the mid range of of where, you know, so so they're waiting on four year data, um, but but the concept um, with with and you know again it sort of becomes alphabet soup after a while, right? Um, for all these uh, protocols, but but the concept was if if um, you know there's a there's a agent that had a, a specific clinical trial. that was the Panorama trial. And protocol W is sort of that version of that trial, um, but but what it looks at is the level of retinopathy, right? And and you know, do you impact visual acuity by reducing level of retinopathy, right? And and so we know that patients will progress over time, right? They they reach a tipping point if if we look at you know the diabetes severity scale when they hit that level. You know, 47, 53, the sort of moderate, severe, severe non-proliferative retinopathy, the risk of progressing to proliferative retinopathy within a year is is higher, and and those are the patients you want to prevent from developing macular edema, developing neovascularization, and and if you can stop or halt that reverse the stages right if we can see a two-step improvement that's meaningful and and what we've been challenged with is well sorry out, let, me, okay. let me pause you you said two-step yeah. improvement so what yes. what do you mean by that so that's a great question so so when we rate retinopathy right mild moderate severe mm-hmm. you rate it at so you you're know, going from levels, severe to right mild. So, so you go from let's say level 47 one step in, in the reverse direction would be level 43 and then down to 35, right? So you take yeah. them from moderately severe down to more towards the moderate or mild level of retinopathy, wow. right? So yeah. anatomically they have, you know, less venous beating, they have less intraretinal hemorrhages, fewer microaneurysms. You look at the retina it doesn't look as angry, right? Yeah. So we're able to sort of reverse that appearance. And it's good for what we see, right? But what's it do for their vision, right? So, protocol W said, doesn't do much, right? And, yeah. and patients can have this individual injection and the treatment burden, but in the end, after a couple of years, vision was unchanged, right? And yeah. that's not surprising, right? If we really think about it, um, it takes years or decades to develop retinopathy. So I think we're realizing that a lot of these studies need longer follow-up, right? And 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 the challenges um, with that is that we're doing better managing diabetes, right? Patients are living longer. They're not dying of heart failure because a lot of these newer classes of medications are helping with, with that portion of it. They're doing better with their you know, blood pressure, their cholesterol levels, and, and their glycemic management is improving. So, so it's, there's so many different factors that get into it that um, you know, I usually have to sort of, when I start treatment, really have to sort of take a step back and say, okay, why am I treating this patient and how is it going to positively affect their their disease process right and and you know oftentimes it may be that this is a patient even with you know when you send them in and they look like they're worsening and their level of retinopathy is severe that we're saying we're gonna watch for a while right and and or you know, you see somebody and you're like well i'm not sure why they're starting treatment and and you know i think that it's it, it it's a challenge even within you know my practice so there's 11 of us in practice and we all do things differently right yeah. I mean, we treat yeah. um patients the way we see is important and you know i i like one of the newer classes of of you know individual injections that that is a biphasic antibody because it reduces treatment burden right so if i can yeah. treat somebody 3 times a year right that's better than monthly right yeah. and 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 so i i think that as you know we we look forward over the next decade or two you know, we're going to have a lot more treatment options available to help our patients, right? And, but it's, it's the challenge of of saying, okay, when is it important, right? When's it important for the referral? When's it important to start treatment? And there's no right answer, right? I think that, you know, I think it, it it's sort of what that conversation is like with the patient in your chair. And, and, and you know, when you sort of talk through it, some people say, I want to do everything possible. To, right. Or some people say, you know, I'm, Comfortable watching and and
0: yeah, and, and the problem difference. with the everything possible too is that, as you alluded to, it's like well we assume that everything possible is going to be all upside, right? Like mm-hmm. like when you talk about the treatment burden, even if we have the ability to do an injection every three months, and let's say we reduce as you're talking about two steps. So let's say we go from moderately severe to you know uh, mild retinopathy or low mm-hmm. moderate retinopathy. Well, in a patient's mind, they're thinking, well, I'm doing everything I can do, right? So mm-hmm. so as you alluded to, it's everything we can do. I want to do that. But what if it comes out, you know, the four-year data comes out or the six-year data or the 10-year data and shows you actually those patients do worse because now they've got glaucoma or they have, you know, something else that we just don't even think about at this time, you yeah. know? And, no. and so that's that's a real challenge too. I mean, like the, the longer I've been in practice, you know, I, I uh, deal probably... Yeah, I would say it's safe to say that I I manage patients who have glaucoma much more frequently than patients who have um, diabetic macular edema. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's that same sort of thing is, you know, let's say 14, 15 years ago when that patient with ocular hypertension, you know, maybe they've got a pechymetry of 520... Uh, really large nerves, kind of suspicious fields. Not definitive glaucoma, but they're they're high pressures, and uh, we start them on you know prostaglandin at nighttime. And now here they are. Uh, and again, you could same thing. You could say that if you look at fifty percent of of glaucoma specialists would say monitor them, fifty percent might say treat them, and and mm-hmm. and maybe that same patient you would treat in some of those patients because they prefer treatment, and some of them wouldn't prefer treatment, and so you wouldn't. But in this case, now you see them back in 14 years of a prostaglandin every night, keeps the pressure low, but they, you know, they got all these, this periocular uh, and periorbital changes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was first out of school, we kind of, we knew it, you know, we knew you're going to have darkening around your eyes. We knew you're going to have longer eyelashes, you know, more pigment in your iris, maybe more inflammation, but I don't know. I mean, we had had at that time, we had prostaglandins for 10 years, you know, 2008 is when I graduated. So Prostaglandins were late 90s, I think, 98. Well, now we've got them for 30 years, and really, I think it's kind of staggering you see the effect. So, anyway, my point is, is just it's very interesting about mm-hmm. all of those ins and outs, and it. I think that's what makes uh, practicing fun. It's what makes being a patient probably pretty challenging because they're putting our their their trust in our in our hands, and that probably does lead to some of the apprehension when we are ready to send them for other
1: things. No, I agree. And I, and I think that, you know, being humble enough to admit that we just don't know the long-term effects, right? And and I tell patients, you know, when I'm going to treat them, that there are risks to those treatments, right? And, and you know, the biggest risk is you could be blind, right? You could wake up with an infection that we may not be able to treat and control. And and that portion of it is is something that we have to play off on why we're trying to prevent that, right? And and if we, if I look back over my career, so so when I was a, a third year medical student, I was rotating in a VA hospital and I was in my psychiatry rotation and, and I rounded on a, a gentleman that was there um having having hallucinations, which now I, I probably look back on we were probably Charles Binet syndrome that he was really suffering from, because he had bilateral vitreous hemorrhages. And so here's this vet who is sitting in a in a chair for you know months on end waiting for his hemorrhages to clear, right? Because at the time with vitrectomy you know the, the idea was well you had to have a, a non-clearing vitreous hemorrhage right and then you had to wait and, and that meant that you have people that were stone cold blind right not able to sort of care for themselves um, having visual hallucinations and and we don't see as many of those patients in, in near the frequency unfortunately they do sort of fall through the cracks and we do see patients who come in with terrible horrible tractional detachments and, and vitreous hemorrhages but we don't see that level of retinopathy anymore, right? So now we're 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 you know looking at more ways how can we improve, how can we maintain and keep what we have, rather than you know playing a huge game of catch up that you're never going to get back to to where where they were as functional as they were before things fell apart. So, you know, again, um, you know, there are long term risks, but I think as our treatment modalities evolve, we're going to be doing a much better job with less treatment burdened. And and that lowers the bar for, for treatment, right? I mean, if, if I can treat somebody three times a year or twice a year or, yeah. or do something surgically that will last for a decade or so, right? I mean, yeah. that that's a different than, you know, sort of threshold than I have to see them monthly and they have yeah. to come in for injections or that run risk, right? And, and, you know, for the patients who are using eye drops, right? Hopefully we're coming up with better ways or knowing when to intervene and knowing where that's going to happen because our patients live a long time right yeah. and and you're right it's 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 you know a challenge, but that's yeah. is the fun part about seeing your patients over years and decades right
0: um, yeah yeah ex- absolutely right and helping them with that making you know helping them make informed decisions uh that that benefit them long term and short term. So okay, I'm going to be respectful of your time. I want to ask you because I would be remiss if I didn't have uh, at least some conversation. Um, maybe this isn't your most exciting. So I've got two questions that I sort of want to ask, but maybe I'll I'll hold on to one of them. Um, what is the? I'll, I will I'll hold on to one of them. What is your favorite or like your your the thing that excites you the most about what you see coming down the pipeline in terms of treatment for patients who are living with diabetes or? Patients who are living with chronic, chronic retinal diseases. What, what excites you more than anything?
1: Yeah, I, I think that, you know if we get, you know, on that concept of patients are living healthier lives with diabetes. What excites me most is, you know, what our colleagues, you know, are doing, you know, in primary care endocrinology, how they're managing and treating those patients patients are living better, healthier lives with newer classes of medications and CGMs and and the ability to sort of stave off severe visual loss and blindness, right? So, you know, I would love for, you know, retinopathy to sort of disappear, you know, because patients are doing better with their diabetes, right? That would be an amazing aspect of, of, what I'm excited about, um, you know, as far as you know, within the, you know the realm of what I'm doing on a day to day basis, it's going to be hitting on you know some of these clinical trials that you know are, are sort of underway with you know gene therapy and, and being able to sort of put something in the RP cells or under the retina or somewhere within the eye itself to get the eye to produce anti-VEGF agents or mm-hmm. or something that else that will you know, help them sort of not develop severe visual loss and and disease. You know, I think that a one and done idea, right, we're going to treat somebody and and, or at least, you know, treat them less is is going to be hugely impactful. Now, honestly, I probably won't be around, you know, until that happens. But, you know, patients are going to benefit from better treatments, right? And and so it's, it's really exciting. I remember when I um, yeah, went into retina, it was, you know, all we did have was, was focal laser for, you know, neovascular macular degeneration. Right. And so here yeah. you had somebody who had a net and you're going to you laser it. They were going to be worse for three to five years, right. Yeah. Over natural yeah. history. and They left the office and in, in, you know talk about it in informed consent right of having oh. a conversation that you're going to make somebody worse but long term they're going to be better and patients just really really have benefited from what we're doing and and I hope that the next step is that significant right yeah uh, yeah
0: yeah I yeah I would agree I think yeah probably even so patients certainly have benefited I would say the 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 uh, mental health of retinal surgeons have probably benefited quite a bit too mm-hmm. uh yeah, so so, uh, Dr. Blake Cooper, thanks for being on. Tell the audience where where they can find you uh, online, physically. Tell us about where we can get get a hold of you.
1: Yeah, so I am in Kansas City. Um, I'm with Retin Associates, uh, and um, if you sort of you know look up our website, you know you could you could find my practice. Um, my uh, you know I'm, I'm easy to sort of get a hold of you know sort of through that that avenue. Um, but I've been in Kansas City for 20 years and I'm going to stay here and you know care for patients who live with diabetes. So. Awesome. I appreciate the time, Chris. Thank
0: awesome. you. Awesome. I appreciate it. I hope to be able to... Actually, I might reach out to you to have you on again. This has been a great conversation. I hope sure. you're open to it. Um, yes. So uh, thanks so much for being on. Appreciate it.